theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by our dear friend Adam Farkas in honor of having a speedy Gaula Bimheira Biyameno. Thank you. Amen. We all second that. And thank you for your partnership and friendship and contribution. Let me begin with a, uh, an old anecdote, but a pretty good one. There was once a uh, father who sent his son to a Hebrew school. The temple had a Hebrew school on Sunday, and they would get two, three hours of uh, some form of Jewish education. So he sent his son to this temple's Hebrew school. And one day the father came to the school to see how it's going, to check out the vibe, the atmosphere, to uh, make sure his son was growing and utilizing the time. And he meets his son in the hallway and he says, David, how is it going? How do you like the school? He says, Dad, it's amazing, it's awesome, we're learning so much. He says, really, David, let me ask you a question. Who broke the tablets? And he says, Daddy, I did not do it. And I don't know who did it. And I was not involved in it. Father was really, really upset. He says, who's your teacher? Show me your teacher. And Mr. Cohen walks into the classroom. You're David's teacher? He says, what type of teacher are you? I come here to Hebrew school. I ask my son who broke the tablets. And all he can tell me is, he didn't do it. He doesn't know who did it. He wasn't in on the plan. The teacher looks at him and says, you know, I'm so sorry you're so upset. But I just want to tell you something. I have now known your son David for seven months. He's an honest boy. If he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. At this point, the father is furious. He says, where's the principal's office? Goes into the principal's office, Mr. Finkelstein. He says, Mr. Finkelstein, you're running the school? He says, yeah, 42 years. He says, well, you should resign. You're doing a horrible job. He says, relax, what happened? He says, I come into the school, I want to see how my son is doing. I ask him, who broke the tablets? He says, I didn't do it. I go into the teacher and I ask him what's going on. He said, if he said he didn't do it, he didn't do it. What type of school are you running? He says, listen, I know you're upset and I'm so, so sorry about what happened. Let me just guarantee you, on behalf of myself and the board, we will compensate you for the broken tablets. (laughs) Just, (laughs) Just give us a receipt and we will pay it up. No need to be anxious about it. So, uh, it's also a little bit of a sad joke because it tells us about uh, the levels of knowledge or ignorance in the Jewish world today. They once asked a Jew, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? And he said, I don't know and I don't care. When there is ignorance, there's usually apathy because wisdom, knowledge also stimulates curiosity, a quest, a search, inspiration, and so forth. Now, I say this as an intro because there's a fascinating Rashi in Parshish Akiv trying to justify a juxtaposition that seems very enigmatic. In Parshish Akiv, Moshe Rabbeinu, just a few weeks before his passing, continues to recount to the Jewish people the major narratives and stories that they experienced during their 40-year sojourn in the wilderness. And he highlights 
you know, landmarks, and he highlights unique events and stories and reactions and behaviors, obviously to reflect, to be introspective, and to glean lessons for the future. And Parshas Eikav, he dedicates a nice amount of his words to the story of the breaking of the luchas, the breaking of the tablets. So when you learn Parshas Eikav, you know who broke the tablets. <laughs> his name was Moshe. Moshe Rabbeinu, huh? It wasn't David. It wasn't David, you're right. The boy was right. Very good, very good. It was not David. Nor was it King David. It was Moshe Rabbeinu. But right afterwards, right after Moshe tells that story about the breaking of the Luchas, and he speaks about him fashioning the second tablets in lieu of the first that were broken, he goes on to discuss the death of his brother Aaron. And it's a strange juxtaposition because they happened 40 years apart from each other. It's not like Aaron passed away after the breaking of the Luchas. Let's remember the history. The Jewish people come out of Egypt on Pesach, of course. That's where we celebrate Pesach. Seven weeks later, they're standing at the foot at the at the foot of Mount Sinai, and we have the holiday we call Shavuos when the Torah is given to them, meaning the Ten Commandments are communicated to them. Moshe Rabbeinu goes on on the mountain, up the mountain, right afterwards, and he's there forty days and forty nights. He learns the basics of Torah from Hashem, and he comes down with the luchas, with the tablets. The Torah describes the story in Parshas Kisisa, and in Parshas Eikav, Moshe repeats the story 40 years later. And he comes down, but he describes what these luchas were like. The luchas were a divine item. They were fashioned by Hashem. It's not like it was made from material from the earth, like the second tablets. But Hashem completely crafted the very luchas themselves, and he engraved in the luchas the Aseris Adibris, the Ten Sayings, the Ten Commandments. Moshe comes down, he sees the golden calf, the Egel Azov that the Jewish people created, and he smashes, he shatters the Luchas. This happened when he comes down from the mountain 40 days after he went up. Rashi says that this happened on the 17th day of Tammuz. It's one of the reasons we fast. The first of the five reasons is because the luchas were broken, as we discussed last week, the five reasons for Tishabah, five reasons for Shivas and Batamas, the Mishnah says in Tainas. So Rashi asks the question, why right afterwards would he discuss Aaron's passing when it happened 40 years later? Aaron was there during the 40 years of the desert. The breaking of the luchas happened the first year. It happened literally a few months after they left Egypt, 40 days after Matan Torah. And then Moshe went back on the mountain and he prayed, and ultimately he would come down with a second set of luchas that he himself prepared. Those were the luchas psalicha. He fashioned them, he molded them, he crafted them, he brought them up to heaven, and Hashem engraved them with the Ten Commandments. They weren't of the same quality and stature and holiness of the first luchas, because first luchas were heavenly made completely. The second luchas were made on earth and then designed in heaven, or have the imprint of heaven, if you wish. So Rashi says something intense. And I quote, Rashi says, this is in Parshas Ekev, Perik Yud, Pasuk Zion, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 7. The death of the tzaddik is difficult, so to speak, by Hashem, like the day in which the luchas were broken. So even though chronologically, 
the connection seems strange, that right after the breaking of the Luchas, you talk about something that happened 40 years later, a lot of things, a lot of water came under the bridge, but thematically the two are connected. Because as he says, for Hashem, the passing of the Tzaddik, of the Tzaddikim, like Aaron, is difficult like the day in which the tablets, Now, whenever Torah compares, and that's why the Torah puts the two stories together, because they essentially are very similar stories. The breaking of the Luchas and the passing of Aaron are similar stories, and therefore they're connected by theme, even though in terms of time, the calendar, they happened decades apart, 40, 39 or 40 years apart from each other. Almost 40 years apart. When Torah compares two things, it's not just a random comparison. Okay, this is difficult, this is difficult. It means that in Pneumius, in theme, they're actually connected. And because they're connected deeply, therefore they're juxtaposed. So you might say a lot of negative things happen. If you read through the Chumash, you could see there were a lot of tragedies and a lot of disasters. Before the breaking of the Luchas, the Jewish people created the golden calf. There were different stories that happened throughout the 40 years that were not easy stories, that were challenging stories. Yet here we see that the death of Aaron and the tzaddik, the tzaddikim, is compared precisely and meticulously to the breaking of the luchas. That is bediuk, that is with precision. It's not just a random connection. This is bad, this is bad. This is devastating, this is devastating. This is sad and this is sad. But there's something about the breaking of the luchas that is deeply connected in terms of its theme to the passing of the tzaddik. What, it, what, what, is that, what is that connection? Another fascinating and difficult thing is the expression, kasha misosan shal tzaddikim baruch. The death of the tzaddik is difficult, kasha. It's difficult before Hashem. What does that mean it's difficult? Some would say, kasha, it's difficult, meaning it's painful. It's a painful reality, kasha as in painful. But he doesn't say just it's painful. Kasha means it's hard. Kasha means it's heavy, literally. Kasha means it's heavy. It's difficult. The word kashia, which is a question, means a difficulty, something heavy, like, or something burdening you. That's also a very, very interesting aspect that this is difficult. It's almost like heavy. Kasha for Hashem. What do Chazal mean when they say? They could say, as they sometimes say, Hashem is pained by it, imayanoichi bitzara, etc. There's a fascinating, another Rashi, another fascinating Rashi, which really comes from the Medrash, from a Yerushalmi, a Maseches Shkalem, what happened with the broken Luchas? I mean, let's imagine the scene. Moshe comes down, and he says in Parshas Ekev, he says, I grabbed, I grabbed the Luchas with both of my hands. I grabbed, I held on to both of the tablets. And I hurled them, I threw them from both of my hands. And I broke them, I shattered them before your eyes. He describes in one Pasuk three things he did. He held on to them, he grabbed them, he threw them, and as a result, he shattered them. So you have now, on the ground at the feet of Harsinai, fragments, broken shards of luchas. What happened with these shivre luchas? That's a good question. That's a very good question. Yeah. 
I shattered them before your eyes. What does he mean when he says, before your eyes? And obviously he's talking to the people. So he's saying, I did it in front of your eyes. You all saw it. You all perceived it. Before your eyes. What happened with all these fragments? So Rashi tells us something very interesting. When Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Hashem, after they were forgiven, come back up to the mountain and bring me new tablets, fresh tablets carved out of, out of uh, stone and uh, out of sapphire stone. It was a, a beautiful, beautiful stone. And I will engrave them. This is the second lucha. It's lucha shni, the second tablet. Hashem also said to Moshe Rabbeinu, and make for you an ark. Build an ark out of wood. Asisalecha, rain eights. Build an ark of wood. So you'll have where to put the luchas. So Moshe Rabbeinu builds himself an ark so that when he comes down with the second luchas, he has where to put them. Okay. Now, later they build a mishkan. The Jews build a sanctuary. And Betzalel builds a beautiful ark and a beautiful ark. So there's two arks now. There's the ark that Moshe built before they built the mishkan. And then there's a second ark, the second ark of the mishkan. So Rashi says they were used for different purposes. The Ark of the Mishkan was used for the new Luchas. The first Ark that Moshe built was used for the Shivrei Luchas, for the broken Luchas. So they had a special Aron in which he collected all the fragments, all the shards, and they put them into this Aron. And Rashi says in Parshas Baloischa that this Aron with the broken Luchas used to accompany the Jewish people into every war that they went. Every Melchama, every combat, conflict they went, they carried with them the Aron, he says this in Parshas Baalescha, where it says that the Aaron would go ahead of the Jewish people. In the desert it went ahead of them. And every war, Yotze Imam Lemelchama, this would be, again, this is a quote from the view of Rabbi Yehuda ben Lakish in Yerushalmi, it's from the Gemara Yerushalmi, Masechus Shkalem. This would go out to war with them. Which is really astounding. Excellent question. Excellent question. Good question. You're asking, the Gemara says, in Tractate Baba Basra, page 14, that the Luchas and the broken Luchas were in the Aran. And here, Rashi says that there were two different arcs, right? So the answer to that is, Toysvus answers that once they came to Eretz Yisrael, and then they build the Beis HaMikdash, and they have the Aran over there, and that Aran they put in both sets of Luchas. But before that, according to Rashi, there were two different Arainas. Now, there is another opinion in Gemara, and that is that there was one ark, ultimately one ark was discarded, there was one ark with both of the Luchais, and it wouldn't go out to war, but Rashi's view clearly is that there were two arks, and one would be used for war, and that had the broken Luchais. And the other one stayed put in the Mishkan and the Aran of Betzalah. The fascinating and really astounding thing about that is very strange. We have a principle, and we know especially when Jews go to war, they need a lot of extra sayata deshmai, a lot of divine help. And that's why they would announce that anybody who's fearful and won't be able to deal with it should go home and parsha shayftim. And Chazal say it means even somebody who's fearful because of his or her sins, or his sins, they should go home. Because you want that the people going to war should be kuleich yafer ayasi yomum einbach, people who are uh, spiritually unblemished, not only physically unblemished. So they should be able to fight the war and have the divine help that they need. 
it would then seem strange to bring the broken luchais into combat. <laughs> we have an expression, Ein kateger nasa saneger. The prosecutor doesn't serve on the team of defense. <laughs> the prosecutor is there to prosecute. He doesn't serve as your attorney. He may tell you good morning, <laughs> right? but don't confuse him with your attorney. The kateger is not the saneger. Bringing the broken luchas in an ark to combat was a stark reminder of one of the lowest spiritual and moral moments of the Jewish people, when barely 40 years after Matan Torah, they betrayed the Rebbeinah Shalom by making this golden calf, yeah? Okay, maybe on a spiritual level, but physically, the Luchas were scattered over there, and they were gathered and brought back into the Ark. So now when you're going to war, and you focus, the Mulchama was always a focus on doing whatever you can, to bring down more grace and more blessing and more divine help. And here they're taking to war like their ultimate protector, what's inside. Not even the second luchas, the broken luchas, which were shattered for one reason and one reason only. Even the second opinion that says that the luchas and the broken luchas were together in the Aaron and the Mishkan, it's very strange. It says that the Kayin Gadol wouldn't go in in Kaidish HaKadoshim on Yom Kippur with golden garments. Why? Because the gold is reminiscent of the golden calf, even though it's not connected. The golden calf was a golden calf, and this is golden garments. But still, Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. Don't go in with gold. And yet, according to the second view, in the Holy of Holies, they had the broken luchos, which is not just like gold, which reminds you gold, gold, gold is connected, this gold to that gold. But this is actually a physical remnant of the event of the broken of the broken luchas of the event of the calf which caused the broken luchas certainly according to the view of Rashi they, they took it out to war so they went to Mulchama with these broken luchas so this leads us to discover that there's something very positive very powerful very empowering about these fragments about these broken pieces yes there was obviously a tragedy in what happened but there's also something very very sacred and beautiful and splendid about it. The question, and that's why they precisely took this ark, this aura in Rashi says in Baaloischa, out to war with the Shivrei Luchas, with the broken Luchas. And later, these Luchas would make their way into the Kaidosh HaKadoshim with the regular second Luchas in the holiest place inside the Aaron in the Holy of Holies. And not only would they not bring out something negative about the people, but there was something very positive and amazing that was brought out through these luchas. What is it? Which brings us now to another question. And that is, did Moshe really have to break such a priceless item? He says, I grabbed them, I threw them, and I shattered them. <laughs> Say the Jews were undeserving of this unique divine gift. Okay, so give it back to Hashem. <laughs> Say, take it. Hopefully we'll use it another time. <laughs> it's hard maybe to go up to the mountain. You have to be invited to come to heaven. Hide it somewhere. You can bury it. I know some people would sell it on eBay. I don't think Moshe Rabbeinu would do that. But listen, you'll forgive me for my profane example, okay? But it's a 25th anniversary or a 40th anniversary, right? And you decide to buy... Uh, to buy uh, your husband an amazing gift, a gift like no other gift, you know? A lot, a lot of money is spent on it. And 
you come to the house and you prepare for this great moment and uh, I don't want to be a party pooper, but say he's having a really, really, really serious, lousy attitude. And uh, you don't feel he deserves this gift. (laughs) What he said and what he did. I hope nobody relates to this personally, but you understand the concept. So what are you going to do? Destroy it. Destroy it. Cost you so much. You don't destroy it. (laughs) Sell it. Get a refund. Put it away. The luchos were priceless. It's not like you could go and buy all that. It was $25,000. We'll buy another tennis bracelet for $25,000. Even then I wouldn't destroy it. (laughs) Put it in a locker. Hide it somewhere. The luchos were literally priceless. And I use that word... You know, with with uh, meticulously, they were pri- in other words, they're not replaceable. It's not just they were very expensive. You can't recreate them. You're not going to get another set of such luchas. Perkyovus it speaks about you know how they were created erev Shabbos bein hashmoshes, Friday afternoon by dusk, right before sunset, with the other unique things that were created then. The pasuk says clearly, haluchas ma'aselakimei, Hashem fashioned them. They weren't from regular stone. The first luchas. So even if the Jews are undeserving, and even if Moshe is very upset, and even if Moshe is experiencing such heartache, why shatter them? Why destroy them? Why break them? What happened? So Chazal, our sages, asked this question. And their answer is a very, very fascinating and also a difficult answer. This is discussed in the Medrash, Medrash Tanchuma, Parshas Kisisa, it's discussed in Talmud Yerushalmi. It's discussed in Pekid Rebbe Lezer, in Ovis de Rebbe Nossin, various Medrashim that deal with this question. And the answer Chazal gives is as follows. When Moshe came down with the Luchas and observed the golden calf, Oisius Parchas, the letters engraved on the tablets flew away. They soared. Parchas means like of Parech. They flew. They flew away. They soared up back to heaven. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, it says in Avaz Reb how can I give them Dover She'en Behem Mamish? How can I give them something that's, that has no substance? There's nothing there. And Chazal say it becomes heavy. The Lucha has become overwhelmingly heavy. There's such a burden now on him. Moshe says, I can't hold on to this. And he throws them out of his hands, Ashlichem, as he says, Ashlichem me'al, Ashlichem me'al shtei yodai, I throw them from both of them, I break them before your eyes. So once the oisius are gone, the letters are gone, they're so heavy, there's such a heaviness, the gravitational power of these stones are so heavy, Moshe says, first of all, there's no point in giving them something that has ein behemamish, that's what the Ovis Reb says. Chazal say they're just too heavy for him. So Moshe breaks them. He will not carry them another moment. But this too needs so much explanation. First of all, how could you say that they have no substance? They're, they're worthless. Remember, besides the fact that Hashem engraved the letters in the Luchas, the stone themselves were fashioned by God. Again, forgive me for my profane examples. If you purchase an extraordinary, magnificent bracelet for $25,000, I know those are the cheaper ones today, and you have a beautiful message engraved, 
beautiful message engraved. Even if those letters become blurry or become eclipsed, the bracelet doesn't lose its value. It has value. But it's beautiful to have those letters. The the, the letters are gone. The letters soared. And by the way, I should just say, the Alshech, Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech explains that when it says the letters soared, he says it doesn't necessarily mean the physical letters soared because they were engraved. So you have to say pieces of the stone. But he says it could be the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the, the divine energy of the letters were gone. It was just like a physical substance. That's how the Alshech explains it. But even if you explain it that way, the stones themselves were, were priceless. Again, they were heavenly made. You can't buy them in the store. You can't find them in a query and hone them out and, and hone them and, 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 and develop them, sculpture them. These were sculptured by Hashem Himself. They have no substance. And what's the idea that it became so heavy? Moshe Rabbeinu was, uh, was a very strong person. It became so heavy that he simply couldn't put it down. Put it down on the mountain. Bring them back to Hashem. Moshe says, no, it's almost like unbearable. It's unbearable. I can't even hold them on for another moment. What, what, what are Chazal telling us? Yes? Excellent question. Very good. You're saying the Pasuk also tells us that it wasn't just like it's so heavy, so you drop it. You know, you're carrying something heavy. You ever carry something heavy? But you drop it. Can't carry it anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, I grabbed it. And I threw them. In other words, there was intention, there was consciousness. It's almost like the heaviness represented something that caused Moshe Rabbeinu to intentionally say, I have to grab it, the espice, and, and, and throw it away. So one of the explanations in this, so you remember the, the structure of the class? We started off with the comparison between the breaking of the luchas and the death of tzaddikim. We went on to discuss, to ask why they would take these broken luchas to war. Especially when you're going to war, you need, you need schusim, you need, you want to bring merit and mitzvahs and masim toivim, good things, and not be a reminder of something that was negative and tragic. If anything, bring the second luchas to war, because <laughs> they're whole and they represent that there was repentance and there was forgiveness, not the first ones, which represent the, 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 the downfall of the Jewish people, the brokenness of the Jewish people, spiritually and physically. And finally, number three, why did Moshe break the Luchas? Hide them or give them back to Hashem. They're not even his, by the way. It's, it's even, the halachic authorities even have a question, was he allowed to do it? You know, Jews ask everything, right? We, we don't let anything go. In Svarim, there's a big question. Who gave Moshe permission? That's a wonderful question. I love the question because it tells you nobody's above the law. Like, there's no reason to think, I'm breaking the luchas. Well, it's yours? You're a messenger. If I give you something to give to somebody else and I appoint you as my shliach, you don't have a right to destroy it. You don't like it. You don't think you should give it. So don't give it. Come back to me. Right? It's an interesting question. Did Moshe even have a right to do it? But he decided to do it and he did it. Why did he really have to do it? Even if he was so upset. Even, even if he was so angry even if it was so hurtful. And was that really the productive thing to do? I mean, usually we don't compliment people who break things. Right? Even if I'm very upset. I have to process my emotions. I know that. I have to deal with uh, my somatic situation and my nervous system out of whack. But do I start breaking everything that I see, especially something that is literally irreplaceable and it's a divine gift? 
Right? What would you say to somebody like that? Huh? So Chazal say it was heavy, it was so heavy, and there's no substance anymore because the letters are gone. But what does that really mean? You want to ask something? Somebody raise their hand. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, good question. It would seem that it show, displays weakness, not strength, right? But yet it seems... Huh? A man so great. The Rambam calls Moshe Rabbeinu Mifchar Mine Nushi, the, the, the choiciest of what a human being can become. Shleimus Mifchar Mine Nushi, like the creme de la creme of what a human being can become. So one of the explanations in this is extremely moving and very profound and also very relatable to us. And that is, in life, we sometimes, at a point in life, discover something or develop a relationship. And it doesn't only enhance our lives, it redefines the very essence of who we are. I remember years ago, a couple once came to see me. I don't know if this is a perfect example, but it's an example, maybe even a pretty good one. I'm not sure, you'll decide. A couple came to see me, and what was the issue? The issue was, the struggle was, that the husband comes home late almost every night. He goes to work, he goes to shul, he goes to his friends, he goes to this event, that event. It's Brooklyn couple, so there's always events. I mean, even in Muncie, there are always events. But if you live in Brooklyn, you know, you can have nine weddings a night and eight bar mitzvahs a night and another seven vachnachts and uh, another few simchas, you know, Baruch Hashem. And if you're a friendly person, you know, you go everywhere. <laughs> so there was a situation, he was always coming home late at night and, and it was, she was upset. So they're sitting there, and I'll never forget his argument. It was such an interesting argument. He turns to his wife and to me, and he says, I don't understand. How old were you when you got married? So she said, I don't remember, 22, 23, 21, whatever the month. So he says, before that, before that, where were you living? So she said, for, first she was at home, and then she had an apartment. She lived in an apartment. She was teaching somewhere. She says, what's the problem? What do you care for when I come home late? She says, I'm scared. I'm scared at night. I'm lonely. I'm, uh, it's very uncomfortable. He says, before we were married, you were living in an apartment alone? She said, yeah. He said, were you scared every night? She said, no. <laughs> she said, so why don't you imagine that you're 20 years old and I'm not home. Don't be scared. That was his... Uh, it's like a real man's argument, you understand? Mathematically, just go back to that place. You weren't lonely then, so don't be lonely now. You weren't afraid then, so don't be afraid now. So she looked at him. She didn't understand a word he said. She said, but we're married. <laughs> so I turned and I said, Mazel tov, Mazel tov, Mazel tov. Let's discuss marriage for a few minutes. What marriage means for a few minutes. What he was saying is, make, when I'm not home, make believe you're not married. If you were a single girl, you're not scared at night. You're not petrified. It's not like it's dangerous in the apartment. Her point was, that's true, but I'm not 20 anymore. Now we're in a relationship. We're connected. 
To give a, 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 a very painful example, which obviously would be clueless and callous. If somebody loses a loved one, God forbid, heaven forbid, a parent loses a child, and the devastation is, is beyond, beyond words. Nobody can describe the pain of gr- and grief that a parent goes through in such a situation. Now imagine the, the foolish callousness and cluelessness of somebody telling the father or the mother, I don't understand. This child wasn't always around, right? Before this child was born, you were happy? Yeah, life was great. So why don't you just go back to that place? I don't know if mathematically it makes sense or not. I doubt it. But what's the callousness? I can't make believe that this relationship never happened. It's true there was a time I was not married. It's true there was a time I did not have that child. It's true. But sometimes you develop relationships that once those relationships come into your life, they're not just added nice enhancements. They redefine who you are. I'm not the same person. Sometimes people even have it, lahavdal between people, but they sometimes have it with a certain uh, vocation or a talent. You remember Leonard Bornstein? He's a very, very famous Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, composer and director of symphonies. He died a few years ago. So I was once reading about him. He, wrote, he, so he said, life without music is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Sometimes you're in love with music, Right? And you take away music, he says, it's not, live, it's not worth living life. Rivka says to her husband Yitzchak and told us, my life will become disgusting if Yaakov uh, ends up marrying Bnei Ches. Rachel tells her her, her, her her husband Yaakov, right? If I can't have children, you know, I feel like I'm not alive. So you'll tell him what you never lived with. You can't live without music. You can't live without music. There's no such a thing as life without music. Everybody lives with music. But sometimes, for somebody, their relationship is so deep. This is why. This is who I am. And once I taste it, I can't go back. <laughs> there was a line from one of the architects of the American Revolution. Is uh, Thomas Paine? You know American history, huh? No. <laughs> I think he once said, a mind once enlightened cannot become dark again. Sometimes I don't know about a certain truth. I don't know about it. That's true. But once I, once I learn about it, I can't make believe I never learned about it. A mind once enlightened is forever changed. Once you taste, once you see, once you perceive, once you come in contact with a certain truth, and it's a real truth that changes you, I can't go back to the person I was before I perceived that truth. Why not? Why not? You were fine. It's a foolish question, why not? (laughs) Because I have become a new person as a result. And if you take that away from me, you take away from me, me.
You don't just take away that from me. You sometimes see it in couples. You probably have read stories or even know people, a wife passes away, a husband passes away, a few weeks later, a few months later, spouse passes away. They say, what happened? Heartbreak. They even have a word for it. It's called the, the, the uh, uh, widow effect. You ever, uh, it's, it has some name. I think widow effect or something. The 41st president of the United States of America was George Bush. The father. He had a wife, Barbara. You remember Barbara Bush? They got married in 1945. They had a splendid marriage. She fell ill. And I think she died in 2017 or 2018 at the age of 92. The last time she went into the hospital, right before she died, he came to visit her. He was also not feeling well. You know, he was old and he really looked... uh, Gruntled and he was just sick. He wasn't, but he walked in and he held his wife's hand, and she opened her eyes, and she said, "George, you are devastatingly handsome." And I, I read the article, and everybody there, the nurse, doctor, they went out to the hall and they were crying. It was like she she could barely breathe, and he really looked not that best shape. But she said, you are devastatingly handsome. She passed away soon after, and a few months later, he died. Sometimes there are relationships that are so powerful and are so deep that once I develop that relationship, there's no telling me, make believe it never came into your life. That old person doesn't exist anymore. doesn't exist. That's the deeper meaning when it says, The letters of the Luchas were engraved. There's two types of letters. There's Oisius HaKsav and Oisius HaKakika. Oisius is like a sefer You take the ink and you transcribe letters on the parchment. You can also remove them. It may be hard to erase, but you could. They're separable. Even though they're attached, when you put letters on a piece of paper, a papyrus, or a parchment, they're attached, but they're separable. But engraved letters are different. How do you eliminate an engraved letter? The letter is engraved into the very stone. It's not a separate entity that is now added to the paper, to the parchment, so therefore you can erase it. Unless you chisel and you change the stone itself, you can't eliminate the letters. So that's physically. Spiritually is an expression in Zohar. Train Ray in the Lamis Parshan. Sometimes you have two friends who are inseparable. When Yonason was killed in combat, you remember David HaMelech's eulogy? You remember Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel Beis? David HaMelech's eulogy for his friend Yonason. It's one of the most moving uh, eulogies that one can ever read. Right? He says, Na'amta alai, achi, my brother, you have been so sweet for me. The love I had for you surpassed any love in the world. He curses the mountain, Mount Gilboa, where Yonison was killed. No dew should fall there, no rain should fall there, it shouldn't grow. You go to Mount Gilboa, you'll see it's still barren. <laughs> yeah, you can go, you can visit it. David HaMelech's words were materialized. They tried to plant trees. It doesn't work. He cursed that part of the mountain. Mount Gilboa, you could check it out. 
Shaul was killed and his son Yonason were killed. Because sometimes a relationship is so engraved, it's not written on my soul, it's engraved in my soul. It redefines me. I'm not the same person, I'm not the same human being. You take that away, it affects me at my core. And this really represents the story of the Jewish people. What's the story of the Jewish people? The story of the Jewish people is this exact story. A mind once enlightened will not go dark again. I can't erase truth from your mind. I can make believe. Forget it. Forget certain things you could forget. Certain things you can't forget. Once you taste reality, there's no going away from it. Somebody may have never tasted it. As they say in Russian, Pajalasta. Once you taste something, you'll tell a person and say, you know, I'm going to put you in a, in, a, in a stable. And just like the horses have everything, you're going to have all your needs. You'll have three meals a day. You'll have comfortable straw to sleep on. You'll be in a corral for a horse that's Ganadin. What else can a horse ask for, right? A nice stable, it can roam, it can run, it can gallop through the mountains here. Kakiat Mountains, Kakiat Park, Bear Mountains, Trails, Amachaya. What else can it ask for? For a person, it's the worst sentence in the world. Why? The answer is, I'm not a horse. So you say, okay, but at least you could live like a regular animal. You'll say, do you really need love? You really need community? You really need relationships? You need family? You need, a, you need literature? You need wisdom? You need music? These are all extracurricular activities. Just go back to the basics. You know, become a, a forager, right? <laughs> Let's become foragers. It's, it's <laughs> you know, I can't argue with you intellectually, but we know it doesn't work that way. And the reason it doesn't work that way is because once I taste certain realities, it's diff- very difficult to live without them. Now here is this. What happens once you taste infinity? Once you taste ain't safe. What happens once you taste? In Yiddish it's called fazucht. Once you taste buds, physical or emotional or psychological or spiritual, what happens when you taste true reality, when you taste infinity, when you taste the existence of the divine in the world, <laughs> there's no going back. You say, yeah, but other people don't. Fine, I get it. But like, like, like this music, musician, that for me, life without music is unthinkable. Why? Why? <laughs> and the answer is, once I tasted the beauty, the richness of a certain person or a certain reality or a certain wisdom or a certain relationship. Life without that is just so empty. Does it work maybe for another person who never tasted it? Yeah, it does. Now, within people itself, this is where you have to appreciate who you are. Some of you know in this room, somebody who's sitting in this room or or watching or listening, no, you may have a restlessness. There's a restlessness. 
Right? Some of you relate to what I'm saying. And many of us go to therapy because of that restlessness, right? Why can't I just be content? Why can't I just be, why can't I be like my sister, a happy-go-lucky? I'm not talking about my sister, I'm talking about your sister. My sister's not such a happy-go-lucky. She's happy, but she's not a happy-go-lucky. Look at my sister, right? Alts is good, I'm a chaya. And me. What's the word? Huh? There's a good word for it. The sound of the mosquito, Shabbos afternoon, when you're trying to sleep on your porch. You know the mosquito that landed Dafka by you because he hates you? There's a word for it, but I forgot. So yeah, sometimes we have anxiety and stress, and we should all try to alleviate as much as possible our anxiety. But I want to explain that there's something that is not always a curse here. Your soul knows your potential. Your soul always knows your potential. And if I'm not living up to my potential, there's a restlessness in my soul that's not coming because I'm messed up. It's coming because my soul tasted something. My soul is looking for its song. There's a metaphor that was once given by a great spiritual master. He described life. And he said there was a man who was walking and he had an unbelievable ear for music. And he came to a city and he heard a villager standing in the marketplace with a violin or a guitar and playing this most splendid melody. And he learned it and studied it and it filled his soul with such delight. And then he moved on and a few weeks later he forgot the melody. You know when you're trying to remind yourself a beautiful song, and it's just not coming, right? And you ask everybody around the table, do you remember the song we sang, Laja? Nobody remembers, you're the only one who remembers it, but you don't remember it. So this person started to travel the world and to try to find that song. And he asked everybody, sing me, sing me a song that will inspire me. And everybody sang their most beautiful songs and he listened and he said, it's beautiful, but it's not that song. He didn't remember what it is, but he knew it's not that song. Because when you hear that song, you know it. Right? It resonates. It triggers that familiar chord in the depth of your soul. And he searched and searched and searched. And he was restless because he was looking for his song. And uh, the metaphor is that the neshama, the soul, is a chelik elekami mal. The soul is infinite. The soul is divine. And it has a song. And it comes into this world. And it's waiting for the song it knows the song, and it's looking for the song. And it searches for the song, but it doesn't hear the song. So we go on searchers. So this one tours the world. And this one becomes a connoisseur of wine. And this one becomes a connoisseur of food. And this one becomes a connoisseur of diamonds. People develop interest, and really people are looking for something. This one through travel, and this one through books. And this one through wisdom, and this one through career, and this one through money, and this one through certain types of connections. I'm looking. What am I looking for? I'm looking for my song. And we hear nice songs. You hear beautiful songs. There's a lot of songs. Abbasinish dan nigan. It's not, it's not my nigan. And that's the restlessness of a soul. The restlessness of a soul is not always because I'm just ridden with anxiety, because I'm messed up, and let me figure out who messed me up. 
I'm not denying that component, chas v'shalom. You know, I'm the last person to deny that. <laughs> but there's also something very powerful and positive about it. Often restless, the restlessness is a sign of your deep sensitivity and spiritual greatness. You're looking for your song. And a wise person once said the definition of love is learning the song in another person's heart and singing it to them when they might have forgotten it. It's probably one of the more profound definitions of love. I learned my own song, but love means I want to learn your song. I want to learn the song in somebody else's heart. And the reason I want to learn it is because we all forget our song sometimes. And if I have somebody who truly loves me, they could sing it back to me when I forgot it. And we have that nigan, we have that song. Perik Shira describes the fact that everyone is singing a song. Shiru Lashem Shir Chadash. The elephants sing, and the bees sing, and the squirrels sing. Look at the deer early in the morning, right there on, near your porch. They're singing. They're also eating, but they're singing. They sing while they eat. They eat while they sing. They multitask. They're all singing. Everyone is singing. The, the, oh, the birds. The birds give us a concerto. Four in the morning they start these days, before the first minion here. They start their minion before Vesikin. Right? Vayashkem Avram Baboiker, they go before. It's really incredible. Every soul has its song. And sometimes your soul has a GPS, God's positioning system, or ways, ways. And that way says, no, 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 you, you, you did not reach your destination. <laughs> My brother has a joke. He told me he stopped using GPS because he was going to a cemetery. And he put it in the GPS. And when he came there, it said, you've reached your final destination. <laughs> so he said, that's it. I'm done with GPS. It's not a good omen. But my soul knows I have not reached my final destination. How can I be completely serene? The lack of serenity doesn't mean you're messed up. Lack of serenity can also mean your soul is grand and it experiences its true potential and it knows that its mission includes much more and therefore I still know that my journey requires more experience and more wisdom, and more awareness. If I can do it from a place of humility, and curiosity, and grandeur, rather from pressure and self-loathing, it changes it. It's like, you know how sometimes you go on a hike, and in the beginning of the hike, they say there's a one-hour path, one-hour trail, yeah? Two hours, three hours, yeah? And then there's a a five-and-a-half-hour trail. You know those trails? I was not long ago, I went with my wife to Switzerland, to St. Moritz. So there's a lot of hiking there. So we decided one day, we're going to go on a hike. So I took a map. The problem is I'm not good with maps. With a map, right, a little, it's not like a little tiny mistake can cost you a couple of days, right? So one of the turns, I made a little tiny mistake. I'm fully guilty. So instead of a few hours, (laughs) it ended up into a full day and part of the night hike. But we're here to tell the story, Baruch Hashem. And up up a mountain, up a mountain literally. And I was thinking about it, you know, everyone's life is a hike. It's a hike. 
Some parts of the hike are steep. Some types of parts of the hike are straight. Some part, sometimes the views are amazing. In St. Moritz, they're always amazing. But sometimes the views are not so amazing. But every hike has its unique flavor, its unique personality. And there's different hikes. And what if your soul was destined to reach the heights of, of, of Mount Everest or the Himalayas? I could reach the middle of the mountain. For other people, they've reached their destination. But my soul says, you know you didn't reach your destination. It's true physically. It's even more true emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Because this is my nigan. This is my song. This is the story of the Jewish people. What happened at Sinai is, it says, God, Hashem revealed Himself. Ponem beponem, dibur Hashem imachem. On the day of the fire, Moshe says he spoke to you face to face. Ponem beponem. The Balatani says ponem beponem means pnimius to pnimius. His pnimius went into your pnimius. His core went into your core. Anoichi, Moshe tells the Jewish people, Anoichi oimed beinechem o bein Hashem. I stand between you and Hashem to tell you the words of Hashem. Says of Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev, the Kedusha Slevi, Anoichi. The word, anoichi, that every Jew heard at Har Sinai, oimed, that's what stands, bein Hashem u beinechem, creating an eternal relationship. When Hashem said at Sinai, anoichi Hashem alakecha, I am God, your God. These were not just words. He was describing, anoichi mi Hashem alakecha. My core has become your consciousness. You have tasted, you have experienced infinity. You are divine. I could deny it. I could make believe I never heard music. I could make believe I never read books. I could, ne- I could make believe I never had the relationship. I could do it. And I could try hard to substitute. Maybe I'll substitute it with food. Maybe with alcohol. Maybe with a smartphone. Maybe with websites. Maybe with distractions. But the restlessness is there. Because I have tasted it. And a mind that tastes infinity could not go dark again. A soul that tastes true love can't erase it. It's engraved. It's not written on me. It's engraved. In Bechukhoisai Teilechu. Bechukhoisai comes the word Chakika. Elokos, godliness, Torah, mitzvahs are engraved in the Jewish soul. They're not written on the Jewish soul. Chorus al haluchos. Ein lecha ben chorin. Chorus is the same word like chorus, freedom. Because the only real definition of freedom is that I'm living a life that is aligned with who I really am. If you would go back to my metaphor and tell Leonard Bernstein, you know what, we're going to give you a salary, you never have to conduct a symphony again, nor do you have to listen to music, but you have money. That's not a reward, that's a punishment. (laughs) Music is my life. When you know who you are and what you're connected with, if this gives you oxygen... If this is your life, it's engraved. This is your freedom also. It's charus. It's engraved. It's engraved in me. I may have to become more aware of who I am. I may have to remove blockages. I may have to open myself to my true power, my infinity. Yes, if I have wounds and scars and bruises, they may block me. Just like if I have, you know, if my ears are plugged, I won't be able to hear the music. And I'm going to say, this is not music, this is trash. I have to be able to open myself up to it. But when I open myself up to it, and I can acknowledge, and I can realize that something is truly engraved in me, 
So to cut that out of my life, I could try, but there's no me anymore. You become redefined. Sometimes it's also true in spiritual relationships. Sometimes you encounter a person. Sometimes you encounter a tzaddik. Sometimes you encounter a part of yourself. And once you encounter him, once you encounter that, <laughs> there's no deleting it. Say, yeah, but there's substitutes. I know. <laughs> but this is it. It's, it's a transformation. You have sometimes students with their Rebbe or a chassid with his Rebbe. It's a relationship. Yehuda told Yosef, if I come back without Binyamin, my father will not survive. Why? Why? He has another bunch, bunch of kids. Why? Right? Yaakov said after he lost Yosef, I'm going to my grave in grief. Why? It says all his sons and daughters stood up to comfort him. So Rechayim says, what was the comfort? The comfort was you have a beautiful family without Yosef. One black sheep in the family, okay? You don't have a black sheep in the family? Who doesn't have a black sheep in the family? Present company excluded. You have one black sheep in the family, let him go. Yaakov, look around your Shabbos table. Eleven beautiful boys, eleven beautiful girls, valedictorians. By Yaakov, by Sruchel, by Surab Noisian, Bruyer Shalamit Nevei, and Yeshiva of Spring Valley. And Bnoisian and Sons. Look at 11 girls, creme de la creme. And look at your boys, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehudi, Yisachas, Volondon, Naftali, God, Archer, Binyan. Yosef, okay. He was always a little different. But Yaakov didn't accept it. Why? So years later, Yehuda tells the Prime Minister, who he doesn't know is his brother, Yaakov's soul is intertwined with Binyamin's soul. Their souls became one. Tell Yaakov, separate from his soul. You were a person without Yosef. Yosef wasn't always there in your life, Yaakov. You only had Yosef when you were a pretty old man. Go back. Can't. Go back. You weren't always with Binyamin. Benafshek, Shura Benafshek. Yaakov says, Mesa lai Rachel. Rachel died on me. So the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, on me. She died on everybody. So what does the Gemara say? Ain Isha Mesa Ella Of course, Rachel passed away for everybody. But when Rachel died, it was for Yaakov. In other words, for her, him, her death was everything. It was, he was a different person afterwards. So this is the Venafshik Shura Benafsha. If I connect my soul, his kashros, kshura, I'm really connected. What does it mean to connect my soul? It's not with a knot, you undo the knot. It's a connection of yechidah shebenefesh. It touches me in my deepest core. It redefines me. I'm a new person. There's no going back. Ah! The luchas were unbelievably holy. They're God's rocks, they're God's stones, they're priceless. But once they tasted the oisius, once they tasted the letters of the Aseris Adibris, once Hashem infused in these rocks the consciousness of Anoichi Hashem Alekecha, it's not just the rocks that are engraved with letters. They are now redefined. And when you take away the letters, you didn't take away letters. You destroyed 
the stones themselves. The death of tzaddikim is compared to breaking of the luchas. It's not a random connection. It's very deep. Because this is exactly how we are made. Each of us is like the luchas. Every one of us. A person is made up of two parts. The guf and the neshama. The guf is like the tablets. It's the physical, corporal reality that Hashem makes. But the guf has within it letters. It has within it the soul. It has within it consciousness. It has within it divine energy. We call it the neshama. Just like the luchas are made up of two things. The guf and the neshama. The guf of the luchas is the tablets. And the neshama of the luchas are the letters, the oisias, the seres, the And the ruach hakodesh, as the alshech says, the divine inspiration, the same is true with the person. And each one is holy. It says in Zayar, Gufa de Kadisha. The body itself is holy. The body is sacred. Not only is it sacred, it says in Tanya, when Hashem chose, Uvanu Vacharta, He chose us, the Pchir was actually in the body. Because the soul of a Jew is initially a different category. You don't have to choose it. It's like if I come to buy a house and there's only one house available, the guy says, Oh, but you can get a car. I didn't come to get a car, I came to get a house. You can choose between two houses, you can't choose between a house and an orange. I want to buy a house, not an orange. If Hashem is looking for the Jewish soul, there's nothing to choose. There's, there's one type of Jewish soul, other souls are not the same category. So when it, whenever you choose, you have to choose between two things. You choose between two houses, choose between two jobs, choose between two bottles of milk, <laughs> choose between two dates. You have to choose between two things that have a shaykhus, that have a connection. So the real Pchira was in the guf, in the body. So the body, the guf, is sacred. And that's why so much of Torah mitzvahs was poured out from Hashem for the guf. And that's why to save the body and to take care of the body is doicha pikoach nefesh, doicha kola kula. Even the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur and the Holy of Holies, if somebody's life is in danger and the Kohen Gadol happens to be in Atzala, he has to throw down everything and go out and get into the ambulance on Yom Kippur. I don't know if they ever had the Kohen Gadol as a Hatzalah member. But theoretically, he's in the Holy of Holies. Why? You're having, you have an old man here. He's 119 years old. And he's a vegetable. Doesn't matter. It overrides Kola because the goof itself is sacred. Like the Luchas. Like the Luchas. What happens to a body after the soul leaves? The body decomposes. The body decomposes. The Gemara says that even tzaddikim, we know that it's tzaddikim that were buried and their bodies didn't decompose. There's a few stories that I even know from the last generations. But the Gemara says, before even the biggest tzaddikim, the goof is going to decompose, even for a few minutes. What's the reason for that? If the body is so holy, so even if the soul leaves, the body should stay intact. Ah... It's like the luchas. The body is as holy as it gets, but once the body tastes the soul, once the body experiences a relationship with the soul and the soul is engraved in the body, you can't tell the body anymore, okay, the soul went bye-bye, and now you be you, you just be a rock. We love rocks. We have nothing against rocks. We love boulders, we love mountains. Everyone, you look at a mountain and it's, it's, it's inspiring, right? Have you ever saw a tall mountain? You ever looked... Because when we see a mountain, as Fasema says, when a person sees a tall mountain, it reminds you of how tall you are. 
Why is it? You look at the mountain like, wow. What's the wow? It's tall. It's big. I'm not getting up there. It's much deeper than that. It's inspirational. Another thing, you come to the ocean and you see the endlessness and it reminds you that you're endless. Mayim she'en lehem soif. So the body itself is sacred, but once the body, hatfazucht, once the body tasted the neshama, it's inseparable. I can't tell the goof, okay, you had a relationship with the soul, move on. The body decomposes because essentially it decomposes. It's not just a physical phenomenon. It's an essential phenomenon. Even the greatest tzaddik, the body has to decompose a few minutes. Because once that relationship happened, we become inseparable. There's tchiyas amesim, which is so important because the body goes back into the... The body comes back and unites with the neshama. So the death of the tzaddik is mamash like the breaking of the luchas. The oisius left, the neshama left. So we said, so what? Moshe, don't break it. Moshe wasn't breaking something. It was broken. When he says it's too heavy... It's not just physically too heavy, I lost control, I can't do anything, just drops it. Too heavy means when you say something is so heavy, it's so heavy, it doesn't necessarily mean I can't carry it. You say, this is too heavy for me. The stones without the, the, the oasis, without the neshama were heavy. They were too heavy because it was a burden that it couldn't carry. It broke the luchas. They were essentially broken without their soul. Why? What's wrong with a beautiful sapphire stone made by God? Nothing. But once you tasted infinity, you're not a rock anymore. You're the luchas. You're not a rock. Sorry. A rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. I don't know if that's true. We'll probably figure out one day that rocks are not just rocks, and islands are not just islands. But it could look that way. But I'm not, you're not a rock. You say, survive as a rock. I'm not a rock, my friend. I tell him, you're a luchos. The oasis were taken. Moshe says, the luchos can't exist. When the Jews are going to war, what do they take? They take the broken luchas. Because this shows you what a Jew is and it shows you what a soul really is. Because let's understand, what does it mean they're going to war? You have sometimes a war of self-defense. Somebody is attacking, we have to defend ourselves. But when they went to war, it was often for conquest. So let's describe a war in more broader terms. Why do you have to expand? The concept of a war where the Jew would decide we're going to go and conquer and bring in another territory in Territ Yisrael. What is it really, the idea? The real idea is to bring the Aaron of Hashem into this new territory. So this is the big question in life. Why do you have to expand? Stay in your corner, live your life, be content. It's small, it's narrow, fine. Remember, happy-go-lucky. And if you really get desperate, a cup of wine should do it. If you need two cups of wine, okay. Tell your doctor you did one. Figure it out. 
The idea of Melchama, the idea of Melchama is really the vision, that Klal Yisrael is not content to remain parochial, to remain narrow, to remain in my one space and be content. There is a vision to fix the world. The whole world should be transformed. Rosh Hashanah, what are we daven for in the davenings? Incredible words. We speak about the whole universe. Talk about yourself. Talk about your bank account. We don't have enough tsaris with, with the children. You have to talk about the whole world, really? I have to worry about the world, but that's what we talk about. Every creature should know that you created them. Everyone should know. Like we say at the end of Aleinu. Yakiru v'yedu kol I don't have my own issues. Tell me, anybody here doesn't have something to worry about? You don't have to answer. But once the mind tastes infinity, you don't go dark. The Jew knows, deep down, his or her potential. Ultimately, each and every one of us includes the whole world inside of us. You're not small. I may like to say I'm small, but I'm not. The Rambam says in Hilchus Truva that a person should see the world as balanced and my movements can change the world. Is that a little dramatic and exaggerated? There's 8 billion people almost. I'm a little guy. I pay my taxes, but it's not that significant. I pay taxes, but it's not so big. So really... But the truth is, it's not, it's not drama. The Gemara says this, the Rambam says it, because the truth is, from the Jewish perspective, the truth is a person is koilo debriya. You're a microcosm of the macro. The world exists inside of me. And a movement inside my thoughts, my words and actions changes reality. It changes the landscape of reality. When you know your potential, and every soul knows its potential, because in the womb of the mother, everyone learned the whole Torah. Why do we learn the whole Torah in the womb of our mother? It means that it's in my DNA. So as I'm born, that's the music I'm looking for. That's the song I'm looking for. The whole Torah is in there. It's engraved. And that's why I'm not going to be content if I don't really live up to my infinite potential. So when Jews are going out to combat... The greatest empowering limut schus is, look at the broken luchas. Why did they have to break? Of course, the Jews sinned. But look at the depth. Why did Moshe break them? Why did they turn into broken pieces? The answer is, because once the stones tasted the divine consciousness of the Aserah Sadibris, there was no going back. <laughs> once you know your potential, once you know who you are, once you taste your calling... I can't eclipse it. On one level, this can create unnecessary pressure and anxiety, but only if it's understood in the wrong way. If it's understood in the right way, you understand this is my calling, this is my destiny, this is my deep mission, so this is who I am. I don't have to be afraid. It's not about validation, it's not about pleasing somebody, it's not about comparing myself to somebody else. Ah, if so... 
when they went on Malchama, this was the message. They took the Aram with the broken Luchas to tell this truth and convey this truth that without the Aseris Adibris, the Luchas are broken. The Guf without the Neshama breaks, it decomposes. The mind, the soul, tasting infinity, without it, it can't just be satisfied with a life devoid of a relationship with Hashem. Once you taste the truth, I tasted it. So when you say, what do you have to expand? Why do you have to maximize your potentials? Why do you have to change the world? Why are you going beyond the comfort zone? What's pushing you? What's, what asks of you to expand the territory of Kedusha, of Eretz Yisrael, of godliness? And in my own world, what's challenging me? What's this restlessness to conquer more in a good way, to bring the light to another piece, another piece, another piece? You know, some people say, I worked on myself for 20 years. <laughs> 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Now a new layer. When do we go to sleep? And the answer is, learn about your infinity. (laughs) Once you know you're infinite, once you know you include the world, once you know that you're an ambassador of the divine in this world, so then you appreciate the fact that every day, my horizons expand. And every day my work expands. And every day I have the opportunity to bring in more oneness, more love, more light into a world that can seem ruptured. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for coming. Oh, okay. I just, I just wanted to announce before you leave, next week I'm away. Please, could I have your attention just for a second? Next Tuesday I'm away. So please, uh, please uh, tell anybody who you know that might come that next Tuesday we're not having a class. We're going to resume, Be'ezir Hashem, the Tuesday afterward. Also tonight online, 9 o'clock, I'm giving a class about the power of thoughts. That's tonight, 9 o'clock p.m., and you could tune in on theyeshiva.net, Tuesday, 9 o'clock. Thank you. Have a beautiful day and a wonderful week. And thank you for coming. Yeah. Beautiful. Depression is about not actualizing what you have inside. Beautiful. 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 Very deep. Not always, by the way, but... Maybe, maybe even in other times, there is that truth. Because, uh, that's what I want to say. Depression is always sending a message. You were not treated well. Even a child or becomes an adult, and he or she is dealing with depression, anxiety, stress. And underlying everything, there is a message. Your soul was stolen. Your potential was murdered. Somebody molested this child. They stole their identity. It's a soul murder. And what does that mean? That means my potential was stolen from me. And my body and nervous system are protesting. So sometimes the anxiety is really saying, you're much more than this. Don't be content with surrendering to despair. 
and resigning and surrendering to mediocrity. You're much more than this. You're greater than this. You're larger than this. And your body knows it and your soul knows it. And that's why you're discontent. So it's really a calling. It's a calling to know what you're capable of. We don't always see it that way. We just see it as the negative. I'm down. I'm in a bad mood. We see the pain. Beneath the pain, there's a calling for potential. Very often in life, people deal with a lot of anxiety, depression, right? Stress, mood, sometimes even mental, mental, anxiety, mental illness, chas v'shalom, or other forms of, of the way trauma comes out. So we feel the pain and we focus on the pain, which is important. But really what we're learning here is, right, that the luchas were broken. Why were the luchas broken? Because their potential has been robbed away from them. The stone is looking for the letters. If something happened to me, my soul and my body know that my potential was taken from me. So the anxiety is really, it has something so beautiful about it because it's a protest against somebody stealing your calling from you. And my body says, I'm not going to let that person get away with it. I'm not going to let the circumstances of your life get away with it. Huh? So a real therapist is somebody who helps them return to them what is theirs, what their glory is, what their mission is. If I was made to be broken, why should I be anxious? Don't be anxious. Be broken and be happy. I'm a broken person. Yeah, I'm insecure. Baruch Hashem. What's the problem? Some squirrels are also insecure, I'm sure. Maybe not. I don't know. They look it. Why can't we be content? There was even those who wanted to help people by saying, just learn to be content with every feeling and, and let it be. But they get stuck. It's important to respect every feeling and, and, and give it space and compassion. But don't, don't get stuck there because the feeling is an alarm clock. It's telling you who you are. It's telling you your potential. And that's what the anxiety is. So when our luchas get broken... It represents the, the beauty, the infinite beauty of the soul. And when we go to war to fix the world and fix ourselves, we take this message. And the reason we go to war, the reason we go to war against abuse and against our own brokenness is because of these broken luchas. Because look, we're not supposed to remain social conformists. And our default mode should not be brokenness. Look, Look what happened here. The luchas were broken because there's a potential here. And that's what we have to fight. That's what we want to fix. So it's a very personal, you understand? It's a very personal uh, point here. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Luchas v'shivrei lachas menachem ba'aren is that in the aren there's also brokenness. Beautiful. But now we learned a deeper dimension. You're a therapist and a psychologist? So how did you understand the message? The new, the, you said reoriented. What was the reorientation? The luchos had to be broken because once they taste that connection, without that connection, they're lost. Beautiful. Wow. Developmental trauma is your expertise? So once you, once you, once you experience that attachment, without it, you're lost. 
And every soul experienced attachment, and every body experienced attachment. It may not have been in this lifetime, girl. It may have been in a previous lifetime. It may have been at Har Sinai. And the truth is, every neshama is essentially connected to Hashem. So when we lose it, there's a protest. There's a protest, you're saying. For some of my clients, I cannot bring from I don't know at all. They don't want to hear. No, you can't. doesn't matter. Real religion is not different than healing. It's all one thing. It's, it's alignment with, with, with ourselves and with the cosmos and with God. It's all one. And, and the brokenness comes when I lose that attachment that is so much part of who I really am. It didn't start with me. The book, the book. Yeah. They're, they're also talking now a lot of polyvagal theory in terms of that the state of, that the state of sympathetic, you know, what's called ventral vagal, which is, you know, is based on connection. So they're talking about connection with human beings, but spiritual connection as well. The ventral vagal, ventral. Vagal. She's the Rashi on Stephen Porges. You're also a therapist. Also developmental trauma. You're a trauma therapist. Thank you for coming. It's an honor to have you. This is a, this is a very healing Tyra. It's extremely healing. Very healing Tyra. Right. So, so the whole thing is to um, transmute in a way the sympathetic nervous system into the ventral vagal. So You're saying the sympathetic into the vagal. Right. Because, because, because the ideal state is a state of connection. Right. And the sympathetic, and the sympathetic system, it's the alarm system. So you want to transform, you want to align the sympathetic, which is hyper, with the vagal. Connection. And without that, a person's never going to be settled, neurobiological. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Without that, it's shivre luchas. Without that, we get broken. So we go to war with the Shivrei Luchas to explain why we're restless. You understand? We go to combat to fight injustice and to help people heal and not remain stuck because we point to the broken Luchas and we say, look, without that we're broken. You don't deserve to be anxious. You deserve to be one, holistic. Yeah, sure. You can ask, you can ask. I'll tell you Minnie's name, but he's a very famous Kabbalist name. Because uh, we used to talk about him. Uh, neuropsychologist, psychiatrist. Dan Siegel. He talked about. I have his book, yeah. Integration. Books. Integration. Brain integration. And then, of course, and then I think about the whole world is being integrated. So Dan Siegel defined health as being integrated. That's beautiful. Horizontal integration effects for the brain, different levels. He has beautiful stuff that's meant for parents, which is understandable. He has stuff for therapists, which is not so understandable. Parenting inside out, no? Inside out, then he has the power of showing up and uh, um, how to parenting without um, parenting. Beautiful. Thank you for coming. Hatzlacha and your holy work of putting together the luchas. The Imre Emma said, the Imre Emma said, the Gary Rebbe, the Imre Emma said, Vashabrim Leinechem, I broke them before your eyes, means only before your eyes. There's a deeper place where they weren't broken. 
You hear? It's like the Chuvim based on Mikdash, and only the Basakavai is still old. Le'nechem, yeah. Le'nechem, from your perspective, there was a brokenness. There's a deeper place where there's oneness, and that's what Chiyas HaMesim is, that the Guf is really not broken. Right? The Etzim Luz represents the core that's not shattered. So that's what we try to do. Yeah. It's fix the brokenness. Fix the brokenness. Not fixing, restoring to their innate glory and helping them see the profundity of their potential, of who they are, which is why they're broken, because potential unrealized is brokenness. We always see, think brokenness is if you break something. There's another form of brokenness, much deeper. Potential unrealized. There's also brokenness. Form of art, which I don't remember the name of it, but everybody remembers the name of it, where they, 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 they take like broken vases. Yeah. And after the breaks, they yeah, in Japan. Somebody, broken va- vases. That are filled in with gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cracks become the gold, the source of the design. In Japan, amazing. What do you do? What do you do with the frustration of not of feeling like you have a racial potential? Oh, so the, the, so this this frustration of not feeling my potential, it could go in two directions. One is it becomes debilitating. I'm just never happy, and I'm always blaming, and I'm always guilty, and I have this pressure, which is normal. <laughs> but what we're trying to do is to really identify the, the there's a beauty here. Because basically it's a calling to open myself up to what my soul's destiny is. So if I'm doing it from a place of stress and anxiety, I'm not really tuning into the idea that I'm a channel for infinity. So I don't have to worry. My soul will navigate me to where I have to go. I just have to be open to it. Open to the opportunity. Not lazy and not fearful. With, when I go into self-blame and self-guilt and I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm using traumatic voices. You understand? I'm using tools of trauma to heal. You can't heal trauma with trauma. <laughs> I have to use tools of compassion and godliness and holiness. Of course. But that's not a curse. It's a blessing. Hashem is ain't soif. Infinity, you're never there. But that's not a curse. I don't have to be there to be there. Here's the rule with infinity. You're never there. But wherever you are, you're there. You understand? That's infinity. Infinity means I'm never there. But wherever I am, I'm also there. Which is an answer to a question Thank I you. want to ask in terms of people may feel that they can't reach their potential, but sometimes it's not internal. It's external circumstances. Of course. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you have to respect that. God is also involved. Sometimes I want to do something I can't. Yeah, a person wrote me an email. Yeah, he's in. Say, a person wrote me an email. He was in Kailal all day in Israel. His child fell ill, so he's in the hospital now. His child for treatments, so he has to be in the hospital, and he's telling me that he feels like such a loser because he can't learn in a hospital. He can't learn. He feels like he's wasting away his life. So I wrote back to him. I said, "You learn Torah not just." Because it's intellectually stimulating. It's your relationship with Hashem. Hashem obviously wants you now to connect to Him in a completely different way. By being here for your child. So it's difficult. It's not what you expected. But don't say you're wasting away your life. God forbid.
the circumstances are here in order to channel your creativity and your passion into this place. This is where it's now. This is where it is. You don't have to be anywhere else. So it's a very delicate balance. God willing, your kid will become healthy and you'll move on from this. But don't underestimate that when circumstances keep me in a certain place, that can't break me. Because this is, this is exactly where I have to be. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. But you have to know what your real potential is, not what your perceived potential is. Sometimes my real potential is to be here right now, present, and that's my ultimate potential. And if I run away from this, I'm going to break. Huh? Wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. Beautiful. I once read an article by a survivor of the Hebron massacre in 1929, the Hebron pogrom, Yudzayan Yudches of August 1929. You heard about the Hebron massacre? Yes. Was, somebody's name was Goldschmidt. He once wrote an article. His, his, his father was killed and his mother died shortly after from her wounds and he survived. He was a little baby. They butchered their parents. So he said, he wrote what an article. His mother looked at him right before she passed on. And she said, a mother does not live forever, but she also never dies. Right. right? So certain relationships never leave us. Yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.